Good morning. We've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and uh, we've been saying about letters in general, and it will be important today that letters are like two-way conversations, um, listening to someone talking on the phone. And before we hear what Paul says, let's think together and remember what's happening on the other side of the line. That will be really important, especially with this morning's passage. Jews fell out of favor in Rome because of the conflict between Jews and Jewish Christians. It really started to heat up in the late um, 30s A.D. And in 40 A.D., the uh, emperor determined that he wanted Jews out of Rome, so that the issue between Jews and Jewish Christians would not continue to to create havoc. Um, five years later, with the crowning of a new emperor, Jews are once again returning to Rome, and Paul writes this letter in proximity to the time where this is happening. And the problem that he needs to deal with is that most Jews didn't believe the message that Jesus came to proclaim that he is the Son of God and that a new covenant was being inaugurated which would replace the old one. Most Jews, the majority of Jews, did not believe that. A minority of Jews did, a small small minority. And this remnant, these ones that did believe, were tasked to transmit the message of the new covenant to Gentile territories, to be jars of clay. And when you think of what it would have been like to be a Jewish minority that believed in Jesus, um, it was hard for them to break ranks with the majority of their countrymen and believe something that most of their countrymen didn't believe. It was hard for these Jewish Christians to disagree with those who knew the Bible a lot better than they themselves did. It was hard for them to accept the fact that God accepted them, but not their countrymen. What right do I have to believe that I'm included and they aren't? Paul well knows the questions that plague Jewish Christians, both in Jerusalem and in the Roman Empire, he had wrestled with these questions at length. Paul surfaces some of these questions in this passage, some of the natural questions, and what he'll provide them and us with some supernatural answers. So uh, the purpose of which is to help these, the church to continue to cling to the faith in the message which Christ came to proclaim. Um, The question deals with the reason for the unresponsiveness of the majority of first century Jews. And that's what Paul gets into. Again, it was a little bit daunting for the minority that believed to justify, how can I believe something that most people don't believe? And they know more than I do, and they've been around this longer. And so Paul deals with these questions. He says that faith comes from the message and the message from the word of Christ. So the questions Paul deals with surface around, why didn't most Jews place their faith in Jesus' message? Uh, Look what it says. We'll just work our way through here, and we'll notice that there's four questions. Let's take them one at a time. We'll just work our way through this passage. Uh, Verse 18, 
Paul says after saying, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, he says in verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? And so one reason for the unresponsiveness of the majority of Jews would have been they didn't hear. They didn't know what Jesus came to say, and, and that's why they're unresponsive, because they haven't heard. Paul disagrees. Look what he says. Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The message has been publicly proclaimed in the world. It began to be proclaimed first in Israel and then moved from Israel into the Roman Empire. So Paul says, it's not that they haven't heard. You can't chalk up Jewish unresponsiveness to the fact that they didn't hear the message. They did hear it. It started in Israel, went everywhere. So he says, "Eh, no, you can't say that's the reason why. Surfaces a second question. Okay, verse 19, but I ask. Did Israel not understand? And another reason for unresponsiveness is they heard the message, but didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They couldn't make sense out of it. It just was just a bunch of stuff, Jesus talking about this and that, and and they never really landed on the meaning. Uh, Paul, again, flatly disagrees. It's not that they didn't hear or understand it. They did hear it and didn't. They did hear it and did understand it, but they didn't like it. And frankly, for good reason. Look what it says. Um, Moses predicted that God would provoke Israel to jealousy by appealing to people who really weren't looking for him or asking about him. God would reveal himself to individuals who weren't even trying hard to get his attention, weren't really paying that much attention to him. So rather than reveal himself to individuals who were, Jews were very devout. He reveals himself to individuals who weren't trying. This is what it says in um, the last part of verse 19. First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And the way Paul applies that, it's kind of good news and bad news. Um, The good news is that we benefited from those to whom God revealed himself, Gentiles. The bad news, he calls them foolish, and at the time, they didn't know Jesus at all. And again, God, God tasked Jewish Christians to go into the Roman Empire so we as Gentiles would hear. Isaiah makes the same prediction that those who were not either looking or asking for God would hear the message. Look what it says in verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Again, Paul is thinking of the Gentile mission here. And Jews are the older brother 
in the parable of the prodigal son, the ones who slave in the field, and we are like the younger brother. Gentiles are like the younger brother, kind of going off and doing what we want to do. And uh, God then being merciful to those who didn't even try hard to please him. God loving those who made no effort to love him. And again, what would you say if you were a Jew at the time? This isn't fair. I mean, they don't. They don't deserve for God to be doing all these things to them. They're not even trying hard. They're not trying hard to be moral. Would you agree frustrated entitlement? Frustrated entitlement is a powerful source of contempt and resentment. When you have been trying, when you've been standing in line, I remember this happened in China once. So I went to, there was a McDonald's. Mai Dang Lao in, in China. And I would get eBay Cafe Xiaoda, small coffee. It's about all I knew in Chinese. I could say eBay Cafe Xiaoda. So I'm going to uh, McDonald's and I'm a Westerner. And there's not many Westerners there. I lived in China from 2001 to 2003. So I'm standing in line. And uh, I got to know them over the time I went to McDonald's oftentimes, which I still do, and that's why I still journal and write and do all these things. Anyway, so I'm there, I'm standing in line. And there's this big, long line in McDonald's. I'm, I'm patiently standing in the line, so one of the individuals from my Dung Lao, they come and they take me and they sit me down. And then they take my order. Now all these people are looking at me that have been standing in line, and for some reason... They want to be really nice to this Westerner. So at any rate, I'm sitting down and I'm going, oh, this is not going to be good. And so they took my money at my table, went, got my thing, took the coffee, brought it out to my table. And those individuals that were standing in line, that's a case of frustrated entitlement. They deserve to be served first. You ever dealt with that? in a situation, again, some of you very much unlike me, um, when you're on a highway and you've been waiting in line, you know, when it says merge, you know, the, the lanes, you know, some of you are really good about somebody zipping up the side and then wanting to cut in in front of you, and some of you are very gracious, oh, come on in. Some of us We have clutches. It's a little bit harder to do this with a clutch. You have to stay right on the guy's bumper, and it's a little bit more. I've heard that this happens. I'm not sure, but I've heard that this happens. Some people ride the clutch and the gas in order to stay inches. and And some people, I've heard, don't look to the right. They just... No way that guy's getting in front of me because I have waited all this time to get to the place where I can go ahead for crying out loud. That happens to some people. Uh, Frustrated entitlement is a powerful source of contempt. And it's really what we come to in the parable of the prodigal son, isn't it? The older brother had slaved in the fields. He'd served his father his whole life. The younger brother gets the inheritance, takes off, does all kinds of things that you're not supposed to do. 
comes to a place of understanding that his father is better to his servants than the individual he's working for, comes to see his father in a different way, goes back, his father runs out to embrace him and has a feast. Now, those of us who are responsible can understand the older brother. He, Dad invites him in, and he goes, what? You've never had a feast for me. And we can understand why that would be irritating. He doesn't deserve it. This isn't fair. Why would you reveal yourself? Why would you open your arms to? Why would you be nice to somebody who hasn't deserved it? That's what the first century majority of Jews had to deal with. What in the world is God doing reaching out to somebody like that? Which leads to another question. Um, 11.1, I ask, then has God rejected his people? He's got rejected his people. So if they did hear, Jews did hear and did understand, has God kind of washed his hands of Jews, just allowed a small group of Jews to believe and sent them to Gentiles as God done with Israel with respect to being his chosen people? Were they his chosen people until Jesus came? And then... On this side of the cross, Gentiles are now his chosen people, and Jews have kind of been forgotten. They've been benched. They messed up, and God has said, okay, you had your chance, blew it. Now I'm going to go with the church. I'm going to go with Gentiles. That's a question that could be asked. Has God cast away the Jews, excluding them from salvation? Paul answers what he says in the last part of verse 1. By no means. There's not a stronger way to say no. Um, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. If God were firing Israel, would he have chosen an Israelite to be an apostle to the Gentiles? And what Paul will say, and we'll see it this week and really next week, um, God is not finished with Israel. They are not outside of his embrace. What happens in this chapter, chapter 11, all these things, it's like you get to peak inside God's brain and see how he does things. There's one thing that I'd like to know, and there's one thing that I can pray just about every day, and I almost use the same words, but it's something that really makes sense to me. And it's this, God, reveal yourself to me. We can't know God until he reveals himself to us. I can pray that just about every day. If we're going to know him, it's because he allows us to know him. And what happens in this chapter, we get to peek behind the curtain into God's thoughts, why he does the things that he does. Um, What it says in verse 2, when we start to get into this a little bit, Paul writes, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have now bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We hear about a remnant. A remnant in the context is a small, is a small minority of people who have been faithful to God. That's what a remnant is. A small minority of people in the midst of a larger population who have been faithful to God. And this, we find a remnant early in Israel's history. There was a time where there was all kinds of polytheism and idolatry and early in Israel's history. And there was Baal worship and that was, it's the time of Elijah and Elisha. And what ended up happening? God protected a remnant from veering off into Baal worship. Most of Israel was they kind of had this thing about, well, the God of Israel, he's really good at getting you through the wilderness. You know, he's really good in the wilderness. You know, he'll lead you around, you know, for 40 years, but you'll end up arriving where you want to go. And part of the deal was, though, they argued that now that you're moving into a city, uh, you, you need a city God. You know, you've got a country God, it's good if you're back out in the wilderness. And this is really the way they thought. Now you need a city God. And Baal was a city God. He was pretty slick. And, you know, he, he knew what was happening in the city. So, you know, so if you really wanted to be safe, you needed, you needed the God of Israel in one pocket and Baal in the other one, just so you are covered. Right? And so most Jews said, that sounds reasonable. I mean, you can't have too many gods. And God said, oh, yes, you can. Choose this day whom you'll serve. It's either serve me or serve Baal, but make a choice. And there were, most people said, okay, I'm going to go with multiple gods. And there was a small minority, and we would call that small minority a remnant. There was a remnant of 7,000 individuals whom had not followed the majority view. And that's what... um, We find here the point Paul is making in his day, he's taking that piece of history and he's applying it in the first century. And what he's saying, the company of Jews who have believed in Jesus, this minority, he's saying it's a case of the same thing. It's a similar remnant, a small minority who part company with the majority view. Most Jews not believing in the Messiah, some Jews believing. And the point being, well, Paul is a case in point, isn't he? When you think of how Paul came to faith in Christ, he was hell-bent on persecuting those Jews who had become Christians. He was even going to foreign cities to round them up and to kill them. He was, he was more insistent on doing this than his other Pharisees who were the religious and government officials. Again, the, Israel was a theocracy. And the religious officials were the senators. And you had the police at your beck and call. And so Paul had all this power and he used it. He chased Jewish Christians down and killed them on the way to Damascus. What happened? He got knocked on his, off his, you know what I mean, <laughs> ass. And um, he ends up, not because he was looking for Jesus, he wasn't. But God, Jesus, same thing, was looking for him. And 
not in line with Paul's will, but almost against it, said, I choose you. Just like he had chosen Moses. Just like he had chosen Abraham. And what you find in the Bible, it's really more about God's choice. You know, we make a big deal about human free will, but I'm not sure you could convince Paul of that, that there was a lot of free will happening. I don't think you could convince Abraham of it either. I don't think you could convince Moses of it either. When God decides, and then we'll try to, well, Mike, how does this work? But when God desires and chooses to accomplish his purpose, somebody like Jonah is going to get swallowed by a whale and get spit out in the place where God wants him. God is powerful, and he's sovereign. He's sympathetic, but he's sovereign, and he accomplishes his purposes. There's a really good, especially for graduation times, I really like the verse, the Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. Psalm 138.8, really like that. Listen to what it says. The Lord, and again, it actually says, will fulfill his purposes for me or you. I think it might say you. The Lord will fulfill his purposes for you. The Lord will fulfill his purposes for you. His purposes for you. And the Lord will fulfill his purposes for you. He has plans and purposes, and he causes them to come to pass. Uh, So Paul writes here, um, the remnant exists because God chose it to. Their existence is based not in human choice, but on divine will. God looked at Israel again. It says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And we've been talking about that. It's not talking about individuals here. And neither was it talking about individuals when it says, those God foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. He's not talking about individuals here. He's talking about people groups. And God looks at his firstborn, the sons of Israel, and determines... Most of you are not going to believe. Some of you are. So the foreknowledge here is Jewish. And so we can't push this passage to say that if you've come to faith in Christ, it's because he selected you as a Gentile to come to faith in Christ. And there's other people who don't go to church, and and if there's anybody driving by, I can't see anybody driving by now, but if they did, God didn't choose them, but he did choose you. Some people push this passage to make it say that. And that's misinterpreting and misapplying the text. It's not what it's talking about. What it is talking about is that God promised to Abraham that his children would be those to and through whom he would bless mankind. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob became Israel, the sons of Israel. Now the sons of Israel exist in the first century. And God then where the majority of Israelites are not going to believe, he sends his son and he says, I'm going to pick some of you, Jews, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to cause you to leave this country 
and go to the Gentiles to help them come to know who I am, and I want you to help them to know me. And that's what God did. We know about Jesus because God in his sovereign will chose and dispatched. But you can imagine those first century Jewish Christians who wonder, why me? What am I doing here? It really wasn't. Well, look what it says. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The elect who were the Jews whom God determined would be his followers. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Most Jews didn't respond to Jesus' message because they weren't supposed to. They weren't chosen to. God is pushing the buttons here and pulling the strings. Paul states it more strongly. It's not that they, it's, they weren't able to respond. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. This is not would not. This is could not. Eyes that could not see. Ears that could not hear. Can we blame first century Jewish unbelievers for their unbelief? No. Anti-Semitism in the church is wrong. And it's been in the church since the, the beginning of the first century. We throw rocks at the Israelites for killing Jesus the Messiah. The fact is, and again, this is difficult. It was intended that they would kill him. And it was intended that only a minority of Jews would believe. Why did God intend that? Think about it. If most Jews had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, he wouldn't have died. Not only that, they would have stayed in Israel. If they had stayed in Israel, they never would have gone into Rome, into the land of the Gentiles, and we would be in the dark. That's what God does. He accomplishes purposes that lead to mercy. Individuals hearing about him who don't deserve to hear about him. And we are the recipients of this merciful plan of God who calls his children to himself and has them do difficult things. He puts them in difficult places, and it was a very difficult thing to be a first century Jewish Christian, kicked out of Israel, plopped into the Roman Empire, not really accepted by your Jewish countrymen, not really accepted by Gentiles, but the reason you're there is because there's some Gentile Christians, and they don't know the Bible, they have no education in who God is, 
And that's why God sent Jewish Christians into the Roman Empire. So 2,000 years later, we would be in a position where we would have a record of writing and we would be in a position for God to reveal himself to us. That's what he wants. Um, God is responsible not only for the remnant's responsiveness, but for the majority's unresponsiveness. He gave to most Jews, again, unhearing ears and unseeing eyes. God hardened their hearts. We talk a lot about human free will. I'm not going to argue that. We don't see a lot of human free will here, do we? Do you understand? Do you see a lot of human free will in this passage? Well, that's not fair, is it? Again, it all depends when we understand what he's saying and isn't saying. It's not that God chooses and picks individuals, but in order the Gentiles might hear, God did pick and choose. He did pick and choose. Now, does God pick and choose Gentiles to believe in him? That's not what this passage says. What it does say, faith comes from hearing the message, from the message, and the message from the word of Christ. Keep the message in your head. We'll continue to talk about it. The message is that God loved you so much he sent his son so that you could be part of his forever family. And, and the message is that God is really powerful. And that when you keep your, his message in your head, that message is going to work. Keep it there. It, he will cause it to accomplish its purpose. You say, well, what if I stray here and there? God's really good at keeping people in line. Really is. God is really powerful. It says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. Let me, let's say this is you. <laughs> I'm not sure why this would be you, but let's say it is. Here's what he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Jesus said, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Uh, this is Jesus' grip. You think you could break your, you think you could find your way out of that? And he doesn't even stop there. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Can you break out of this? No. And you know what God wants you to do? To know it and believe it. Believe it. Your eternal destiny is not hanging by a thread. It is solid. And when you believe that, it allows you to be a little more secure with God, less on edge. You're able to be more honest with him. I was, I was talking to Travis and told him I liked his prayer last week when he was saying, God, I get kind of nervous, but I guess I don't need to be. And he just kind of verbalized somebody who gets nervous and talks to God about his nervousness. And that's really what he wants from us. He doesn't want to hear the right words. He wants to hear real words. He already knows what's on your mind. He already knows what you think and feel. Tell him about it. You say, but what if I tell him something that, you know, the way God is, he kind of, you know, him. He just... What is God like? When he puts his eyes on you and selects you, you can't get out of his grip. And that's what he wants us to believe. Um, question four, the last question. Uh, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might 
fall. If God is behind Israel's rejection, are they doomed? Has he kind of washed his hands? Listen what he says, by no means, rather through their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Here's where the clouds start to part. And we start to, and again, the way it feels to me, and we'll talk about it next week, it feels like Paul sees what God does and just goes, he, the, the wisdom of how God does things, his power, Paul is caught in it, and he's just looking at it, and he just, it is just so perfect and so merciful, but so sovereign that he just is awestruck. That's what's going to happen to us when we see God. He is so wise and powerful. We're going to look and we're going to hear about this plan and we're going to go, geez, I thought I was doing everything, but he was the one that was doing everything. We're able to glimpse God's sovereign purposes. Um, God uses exclusion to accomplish inclusion. Look what he says, verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What it's saying, that at some point, when the fullness of Gentiles, we've done this before, let you represent Jews, okay? You represent Jews. There's some Jews who believe in the Messiah today, but not many. Not many, some, and again, let's say you represent Gentiles. What it indicates, and we'll find this next week, that God has done this. Put a stop sign to Jews relative to, it wasn't his intent that most Jews would believe in Jesus and his message. He did this, he did enough so that now God could wave Gentiles in. That's what's happening now. He's waving Gentiles, and at some point, God will go, that's it. I really like this part. And he's going to look back to his firstborn. And you know what he's going to say? Well done. I want you to see these individuals over here who believe because of the sacrifice that you made. And I believe that we'll get there. And I believe that we'll be able to express, I think it's going to be part of the deal. I think we're going to be able to express appreciation for the first century Jewish Christian responders. I think I, maybe we'll be able to get to go up to Paul and say, I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you did. And we'll learn about the names of individuals who went into the Roman Empire so that a movement could begin that could get us 2,000 years later, and we're going to say, thanks, you know, but you, but and that like that, the Jews will like that. You know what they'll really like? When Jesus looks at them, says, well done. Well done, enter into the joy of your master. You did a difficult thing. That's going to be a good thing, isn't it? It'll be a good thing, isn't it? With a God who is that wise, Jews and Christians, us appreciation, and they like the fact that we're in. God is that big. He's just amazing. Not only is God using Jewish exclusion to foster Gentile inclusion, 
he's also at the time using Gentile inclusion. Now, this is a little bit dicey. So I want you to imagine your first century Jews, and this is what God's doing. And you've been waiting in this lane for a long time. You know the way they do that sometimes? They just, at the lights, and sometimes the police at the lights, and you're in the line that's waited. I've heard that this can happen, and that some people don't like this. You've been waiting there for ten minutes, and he's still waving people in from the crowd. You understand. What's going to happen, though, is when these Gentiles get waved in, if you're Jews, come on, come on. Beep, 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 come on. How do you feel about that? How do you feel? How do you feel? Jealous, angry, resentful. You know what Paul did? That was supposed to happen because you're going to get jealous and resentful and jealousy and resentment. That doesn't sit very well, does it? It creates a sense where you feel included or excluded. How do you feel? And you know what God's going to do then? And we're going to find this next week. Once you get to feeling really excluded, God's going to do this. Because God is always merciful. And his gift of eternal life is always a gift. There's going to be enough resentment that then there's going to be a sense of exclusion. Then God's going to go here. And you know what? It's going to be a gift. Because God always, eternal life is always a gift. Never a paycheck. Never a reward. You can't earn it. Never have been able to. You can't earn it now. You never will. That's not how he works. It's always a gift, and we receive it as such. Um, We're going to do communion and um, talk about this, and it kind of is another illustration of how it works. We're going to use sourdough bread. I've talked to you about sourdough bread. The way it worked at this time, you made a loaf, and then you take a part of the loaf and you put it on the side. And you take this, the rest of this loaf, and you set that aside somewhere else. That's going to say there's not going to, much going to happen with that. But you're going to take this part that you took out, and you're going to add some things to it and allow this thing to ferment. That's what's going to happen. And so then what happens, you take this fermented piece of that sourdough loaf, and you make another loaf of bread, and then you take this small part and put it in this new loaf. And what you do, then you have made sourdough bread. So the image is, first century Jewish Christians are the part that has been taken out, allowed to ferment. And this new loaf that God puts this fermented pit so he can make another loaf. Who is this new loaf? Who is the new loaf? Gentiles. Gentiles. And what he's saying, though, this part God used And is God going to throw that part of the way, the part from which he took the... No, he isn't. He's not done with them. If the first fruits are holy, so is the lump. I really like this. God never disinherits somebody he chooses. Never. He's too good a father. He's too good a God. He's too sovereign. He's too sympathetic. That when somebody veers and then he, oh, that's it. I'm sorry. He never does that. You can't be secure in a God like that. But fortunately, we can be secure. That's what it says 
And we're going to experience communion and sourdough. So here's what I want you to think about. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you, how will he not also, along with him, freely give you all things? He's really powerful and really good. He really is. If he did this, is there anything God's going to withhold from you? Is he powerful enough to bring you from this life into the next? I remember when Gavin was small and would walk across the street. And he would need to be escorted. I'll tell you what I didn't do. I did not allow him to take my hand and walk across the street with him. Because what might happen? He might become afraid and let go. And if we're crossing the street, what would happen? It wouldn't be nice. So you know what I did when I crossed the street with him? I took his hand in mine. And I am a dad, and I can see where things are coming. And if he runs ahead, I'm going to keep him back. And if he lags behind, I'm going to bring him forward because I can do this. I'm strong enough. God has you in his hand. He is strong enough to bring you to the other side. You can trust him. He sent his son so that you could be part of his forever family. That's what communion is about. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about um, the last part of Romans 11. I don't think there's a relative to seeing God at work. It's just astonishing. Um, but when you think, when you take communion, what I'd like you to do, among other things, think about how God causes all things to work together for good. Think about Jewish Christians who were removed from their countrymen and placed in a Gentile world so that we could hear about what happened and be part of God's forever family. Think about that. So we're going to go back to the back, and the elements are back there. Take the juice and the bread and, and think about sourdough and how God takes out and puts in to allow people to come. And think about how God wants you to be in his forever family so much that he dispatched his firstborn to make sure that you would know about Jesus. Do that, and you're going to take it, and then uh, we'll have a song at the end. It won't tell you when to take the bread and the juice, but think about God and his purposes, and then take it. Father, thank you for your purposes and your strength and your sovereignty and your sympathy and your mercy, how you fulfill your purposes for us. You want us to know that because you want us to put our trust in you, to believe that we can do so, that you are a caring, powerful Father who has both the goodness and greatness to accomplish good purposes in our life. I pray that we would see it more clearly as time goes by, as we are clearer about the message and clearer about who you are and that that trust would reflect itself in the ability to continue to walk with you even through difficult things. In Jesus' name, amen.